This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, the last thing you expect in your early 20s is for your independence to be ripped away from you. Like, that's the one thing that you're supposed to be boosting, looking forward to. But for those who get dealt a horrible medical diagnosis at a young age, their lives are never the same. So how would you deal with that? And what's it like letting go of things you'd always dreamed of? In a bit, we're going to speak to an incredible person who at 21 received horrible news from a doctor and has been fighting for her life ever since. Later on in the podcast, you're going to hear about a secret UFO program that an official claims was running in the United States for decades. What are these reports of non-human beings being found? We're going to explain first though. Hack. At the end of the day, even though you are family, you're also running a business. Typically they say don't mix the two. On Triple J. Yeah, if you've got a brother or sister, there's always a bit of sibling rivalry, right? Like a bit of competition. Maybe you get on really well, or maybe things are sometimes a little bit tense. And if you're in business with your family, you know what I'm talking about. And that's how a lot of Australian farms are run. They're family businesses. And planning who's going to take over is a huge deal. It's called succession planning. Very dramatic, but it is dramatic. Traditionally, farms are passed from father to son. That's the way it's been for centuries. We are, though, starting to see gender roles on farms changing. But is that leading to big changes in who's running things? Well, our regional reporter, Angel Parsons, has been on the hunt to find out. I take over and we just, you know, you two under me, co-presidents. Under you? Uh-huh. Interesting. Can we think about it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, I thought about it. F- you. Succession isn't just a TV show. It's also a real-life drama for farmers out here in the bush. Imagine it like a royal family. It's like the crown's on someone and... The place we're on now, it's passed down through an eldest son system and I think now it's it's going to be a bit different. Now it's going to be a bit different. Could Grace's hopes be true that the days of traditional succession are changing? Well, that's what I want to find out. You know, succession is a point of contention in every single family business, but there's so many more factors to consider in farming. I asked three farmers from Queensland in cattle, cane and camels what they thought. Because it's family, it can get difficult sometimes. Stigma has changed very much. You know, if you've got a brother, you've got to work extra hard to prove that you as a girl can take over things. Hi, I'm Grace McDonald. I'm a 24-year-old agricultural science student and agribusiness student. I'm also a fifth-generation cane farmer here in the Sundays. I love the place and it's where my roots are. Grace is keen to be super involved in the farm's future, and it is likely that that'll happen, but that wasn't always the plan. So when I was younger, there was this idea probably put into our heads that your brother's probably going to get the farm. But I think as the years have passed, it's definitely changed as we've opened our eyes to the bigger, wider world too. Grace left school, started uni, and really didn't think she'd be back on the farm, especially so soon. But in COVID, she started helping out a little more, and that's when the dynamic started to change. I think it's also opened Dad's eyes up too at the potential that, oh, okay, maybe we've got more options than I originally thought with the siblings. 
Grace reckons these patriarchal ideals were pretty strong, but she's definitely sensed a change in her family and her community. We've got the milking machine set up, we've got the dairy book set up. About a thousand k's south on the Sunshine Coast, camel dairy farmer Yasmin has a slightly different take. There's still a lot of that old school patriarchy and sexism that you see in, in farming because it really, it's been a, a bloke's game for the longest time. Like Grace, Yasmin wants a future on their camel dairy and she does have the support of her parents, but it's complicated. Yeah, there's a bit of contention with my father, basically, whether I'm capable of taking things over. Um, I know a lot of other girls, that'll be the same thing. It can be, you've got to work harder than the boys to prove that you're capable of doing it. Yasmin does everything on the farm, from caring for the camels to maintenance to even running a successful TikTok account with more than half a million followers. But I know that whenever I deal with anyone in agriculture, I have to be ready to prove myself all the time. So I run the tours on the farm, right? I, I welcome everybody and I sit there and I chat to everyone, give them the safety brief. And I was standing there in my full farming getup, work clothes, everything like that. And one of the guys there, we're just about to start the tour and he goes, do you even work hard? And I said, what? And he goes, show me your hands. Oh, yeah, those are clean hands. And I was like, okay, all right. So I exfoliate and I take care of my hands. Doesn't mean that I don't do hard work. I had another guy and he comes up to me and I had a brand new Akuba on, okay, $250. And a guy walks up to me, grabs my hat and bends it and says, we need to make you look like you work here. You know, it's 2023. Obviously, things have changed, but we've still got a long way to go in being regarded equally in the industry. Changes in gender roles aside, succession planning is not a simple thing. They've been um, a bit all over the place until kind of recently, I suppose. In cattle country in central Queensland, sisters Renee and Melissa Spencer are in the middle of succession talks with their family. Everyone is included everyone who wants to be a part of it will just work it out. Renee admits there have been times that she's felt like she's had to prove her strength or ability, but on the whole, as women, they've always felt included on the farm and in its future. Both dad and mum have been really good about it. Something I'm very, very passionate about. Like the land and the regenerative ag is massive, I think. Probably reignited my passion for it. And this is all more than a chat around the dinner table. Sarah Kateri is a senior solicitor and farmer and she helps people build their succession plans. These are really serious businesses, very expensive businesses usually. And yeah, it can get super hairy. Often people have vague ideas of their expectations or have made assumptions and that's a really tricky situation. She recommends people try not to blur the lines of family and business as much as possible and bring in a professional. People need to be informed of what they're talking about. People need to have time to process ideas, to communicate their own thoughts about it. Back in the Mid Sundays, I'm surrounded by cane fields, and I've got to say, it's kind of hard to imagine any Roy family esque drama unfolding in the homes around me. There's drama, there's like scheming, there's betrayal, all of that. Mm-hmm. Can we see that in real life sometimes? Oh, yeah. I would not doubt that for a second. I think, yeah, you can see families just be torn apart by it. I asked Grace, though, if she thought women would get more of a look in in the future of farm ownership. I think so. I, well, I hope so, too, to be honest. I wouldn't say I'm a big feminist, but there always is going to be a little bit of me that I'm like, yeah, go the girls. Hack. 
on Triple J. Angel Parsons with that story. So interesting hearing from so many farmers there. We've got some on the text line as well. Oh, could have been farmers. Charlie from Canberra says, I'm glad my old man never wanted into the farm because it's been the beginning of a decade-long family feud and everyone lives on the same block. Yeah, that would be a bit of a nightmare if you didn't love your family. Let's explore this a bit more in the research into this area. Dr Lucy Newsom is a lecturer at the University of New England and she's an expert in farm succession, women in agriculture. She's done some research on this. Hey, Lucy, welcome to Hack. Hey, Dave. Are we seeing more women taking over the family farm generally? Uh, We are, but it's been a really slow change. So the most recent stats we have are from 2007 and they found that only 10% of farm succession processes go to the daughters. So that's usually if they don't have a brother, then they might be likely to get the farm. Um, We did a survey of farm succession advisors recently and they said it's changing a little bit, but there's still those traditional uh, ideas that the eldest son should get the farm um, at play. Is there any idea why those views are still held? I mean, is it because uh, maybe this is a too much of a generalisation, but farming families might tend to be more traditional or more conservative? The big one is that there's still this idea that the farmer is, um, is a man and that's important because of what the type of work involves is seen to need physical strength. I personally think that that's a bit of a myth that's led to occupational closure. Uh, the second reason is that farming families have this really uh, strong connection to land that's based on building on the work of their ancestors for the benefit of future generations and keeping the family farm attached to the family name is often seen as being better facilitated through the patrilineal line and the um, the family name being passed through the male line and that connection remaining strong. And the third reason is that farming uh, families really need to have scale in this economic climate to be able to maintain viability. So breaking up the family farm between siblings is also often a bit more difficult. I'm wondering, the people that you were speaking with as part of this research, the advisors, the people who were involved in succession planning, are they saying that these conversations are happening consistently or early on, or is it something that's often not spoken about? It is a bit of a taboo subject. So often you see uh, it not happen until much later or it's begin and then fall apart. So we're seeing a big range of experiences when it comes to farm succession, but it's certainly a hot topic. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr Lucy Newsom from the University of New England about farm succession, farm succession planning, uh, about how this very traditional model of the farms going to the boys, uh, you know, is still pretty prevalent across the country. Lucy, the thing is that, you know, farms can be really valuable assets as well. And I guess that all plays into this in this current environment where a lot of people are struggling to get assets of their own. That's right. So I think the average price is about $6 million. That's a 2020 figure. So we'll have jumped up a little bit more so. And previously for family farmers, they wanted to keep the family farm intact. And that was really, really important. Um, emotionally and socially. But now if we see 
different siblings have completely different life trajectories because one gets the family farm and the other's struggling to get into the housing market, then we can see that become contested to a greater degree. Do we know what young women think about this, the people in these farming families themselves? Like, have, have you been able to speak to, to many young women? Uh, so part of my other research has been looking at women going into sustainable agriculture uh, and a lot of them have actually been first generation farmers so they haven't had any background with regard to the family farm but other researchers found that daughters are challenging uh, unequal succession to a greater degree and also their brothers have a bit more of an idea that that uh, daughters will have a right to succession. But definitely seeing farm daughters be very keen to take over the family farm and farming families slowly um, but surely coming to the party and listening to those farm daughters. But it's definitely been a very, very slow change. I think that in the future it will be a slow but steady change, but I don't think that it's going to happen sort of in the next sort of 50 years, but I might just be being a little bit cynical. (laughs) Well, I mean, you can probably excuse that. Having been in the research, seeing the numbers and the statistics, you've probably got reason for that. Very interesting research. We appreciate your time. Dr Lucy Newsom from the University of New England, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thanks, Dave. Hack on Triple J. And on the text line, Matt from Bega says, as a fourth generation farmer that's gone through a succession, it's a lot more successful when it's discussed openly. As a partner with my four brothers, we have to have regular meetings to make sure we're heading in the same direction. It's a big thing that so many families, you know, deal with all the time. All right, time to move on. Hack. Health experts say cases of multiple sclerosis in Australia are rising at a dramatic rate. On Triple J. You learn a lot about yourself in your early 20s. Like, it's a time of independence when you're starting to build your life up on your own. You're in your own space, you start travelling more, relying less and less on your family. So imagine being on this path as a happy, healthy 21-year-old and then out of nowhere, like a bomb, a devastating diagnosis. You're told you've got a rare and severe form of MS, multiple sclerosis. Now, MS is actually the most common acquired chronic neurological disease affecting young adults, and women are three times more likely to get it. And there's no cure. The number of people living with MS has grown by 30% in the last few years. Researchers are trying to figure out why. One of those is Hannah Taig. It's been five years since her diagnosis. She's now 26. She's lost function in her hands and legs, but Hannah is not giving up. Like, she's doing everything she can to enjoy her life and hopefully slow the progression of her MS. I wanted to have a chat to Hannah to get an insight into what it's like to come to terms with such heavy news at a young age. So to tell her story, she's with me now. Hannah Taig, welcome to Hack. Thank you so much for having me. Can you start by telling us a bit about who you were when you were 21 years old. What was your life like? Were you studying? Were you working? What were your dreams back then? Yeah, so I was just like any normal 21-year-old, working, partying, going out with friends, just living life as any 21-year-old would. And what were the things that you wanted to do in life? Like when you looked back at your 21-year-old self, did you have big dreams for the future? I was really wanting to travel. I just booked my first overseas holiday. I was going to Greece. 
But I had to cancel that and I just had dreams of living life like any other normal person would. When did you start realising, Hannah, that something maybe wasn't right? A few years prior to my diagnosis, I started having symptoms of shaky hands, trouble walking, difficulty with my voice. And so then what happened? You started experiencing these things and obviously you went and saw a doctor. Well, I'm sure you remember getting the diagnosis. What was that like? It was very confronting. I remember when they first told me, I didn't know what MS was. So it's a neurological disease and it affects your nerves and it affects everyone differently. So for me, it affects my motor function. So everyday tasks for me are very difficult and I need help with everything. I can't do my own hair, brush my own teeth, do my own makeup. The basic things like feeding myself and drinking water, I need help to do so. It's not fun asking for help all the time. You mentioned before that it was a bit confusing when you first got diagnosed because you didn't know what MS was. That would have taken a lot of research, a lot of explanation. When did it start to sink in? Like, And how were you feeling then when you really came to terms with what this was? It was definitely after a few months of being diagnosed then I came to the realisation of what it really was for me. And it was very upsetting, confusing. I was very much wondering... Why me? Why does this happen to me? And what have the last few years been like, Hannah? Because you were diagnosed at 21. You're 26 now. Yeah. What's been your life for the past five years? Relying on support of others. Watching my mobility decrease rapidly. I've had to rely on support of my family, my friends. From my psychologist, I'm very grateful for the NDIS. And what does your life look like now? Are you uh, living with a carer, with your family? How does your life look like now? So I'm living independently in my own apartment and I do have support workers from the moment I wake up until I go to sleep. Never by myself. I miss my independence. I wish I could just get five minutes of my old life back just to visit that memory. The thing is, Hannah, you're such an independent person and from what I can tell, everyone says, Hannah is extraordinary because, you know, she still loves to hang out with her friends, still loves to have a good time. Where do you find strength and the determination to keep going? I've had to learn along the way that I've had no choice but to be strong. That's the only option I've had. And have you got, like, a good group of friends around you? I'm very lucky to have the support of my friends and my family alongside me. What are the things you still like to do with your friends? I still like to hang out with them as much as possible, go out for lunch, go out for dinner, go and see movies. Barbie movie? (laughs) Yes. 
That's still on my bucket list. <laughs> yeah, I got to see the Barbie movie too. Let me know what you think, Hannah. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Hannah Tague about what it's like living with MS, multiple sclerosis, as a young person diagnosed at 21. Hannah, in terms of treatment, how has that been? Like, have you been through a lot of treatment? What are you on now? I've tried a few different treatments that were available, the limited treatments that were available for my type of MS. So I've reached a point where there is no treatment plan for me going forward. So I've exhausted all my options. You're actually looking to go overseas now to look at some other treatment options. What's that about? So I'm looking to receive a type of stem cell therapy. And the idea of that is to slow down the progression and to potentially reverse some of the damage. And where can you get that? So it's only available in a few countries and the country I'm going to is Colombia. What's the best case scenario for you, Hannah? Like going to Colombia, getting this treatment that's not offered here in Australia. Yeah. What, what are you hoping for? What would be the ideal outcome? The ideal outcome is for me to regain independence, for me to regain control of my life, to regain the use of my hands, potentially my legs. The next few years, Hannah, are probably pretty daunting for you. Do you have any idea what they're going to look like? And are you scared about what's ahead? Um, I'm, I wouldn't say I'm scared at all. Um, I'm hopeful. I'm grateful for all the help and support. Like I'm just going full steam ahead. You know, one of the things, Hannah, when we speak to anyone, if it's someone living with a chronic condition or maybe it's a person with disability and we always get feedback from people going and we're, we're getting it right now, people saying Hannah's an inspiration, uh, she's an inspiring person. Is that a really overwhelming thing to hear, to be labelled as an inspiration, as a role model, as an inspiring person? It's very overwhelming, but I'm very grateful to be labelled as that. I never put my hand up to be an inspiration or to be anything above and beyond, but it's very, very nice that people think that way of me. How important is it for you, Hannah, to not be defined by your condition? It's very important for me to not be defined by MS, for me to be as independent as possible. I'm still just very much a normal 26-year-old. I might have limitations, but nothing holds me back. And do you find that really hard sometimes when you meet new people? That I do, yes. I find it does affect relationships, yes. There's a concert coming up tomorrow, Friday, being held in your honour, Hannah. It's called Rock for Hannah. Bunch of great bands. I know you really love music. You must be looking forward to that. I'm so excited. We've got five Australian Sydney local bands that have volunteered their time in Merrickville at the Great Club. Yeah, it'll be heaps of fun. I'll give some details in a bit for those who want to head along. Hannah, there'd be people listening now who don't know much about MS, and I'm sure they've probably learnt quite a bit in our chat today. 
Do you have any advice for people listening, for especially younger people, about their lives, how to live their lives? Is there anything that you would want to pass on? I would say don't take no for an answer. Don't put up with what you don't want to put up with. Feel the fear and do it anyways. You never know what's around the corner. Hannah, it's been such a pleasure to meet you. I had heard that you are an extraordinary person and now I know that's absolutely true. Thank you for being so open, for sharing your story. Good luck and thanks for coming on Hack. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Hack on Triple J. And if you are in Sydney and you do want to go to the concert for Hannah, it's on tomorrow night at the Great Club in Marrickville from 6pm. A bunch of great local Sydney bands get around it. Some messages coming through. Someone says, I was diagnosed with MS in early 2020. I was just 29. Just moved to Australia. It's put a real spanner in the works. I've completely lost the use of my bladder and bowels and it's had a huge impact on my social life. Another person, I was diagnosed with a neurological disorder at 19, but surprisingly, it changed my life for the better. Knowing about it early on motivated me to seize every opportunity. Lots of messages coming through on that one. Hack. Biologics came with some of these recoveries. Were they human or non-human? Non-human, and that was the assessment of people with direct knowledge on the program I talked to. On Triple Jack. Non-human remains being found as part of a secret UFO program, intact alien vehicles. What is all this about? It was part of evidence that's just been given at a US Congress hearing this week. Whether it freaks you out or just really interests you, we all want to know more about aliens, whether they're there, whether they're not. So hearing from some officials in the US is pretty interesting. What do we know? What's this hearing about? What was the evidence? And Dr. Brad Tucker is an astrophysicist at ANU and he's with us now. Hi, Brad. Thanks for coming on, Hack. How's it going? Good. Well, I just want to know, the aliens, are they real now? Have we got confirmation? Well, we have confirmation from someone who heard a report from someone that they may be real. Sounds good enough for me. (laughs) (laughs) Look, we're at the point now, I guess, where people are trying to say, hey, um, we've heard information from inside the government, not people from the outside. And there may be credible sources that there may be something going on. But, you know, so far, nothing has been presented. There's not a, a, a body pot on, you know, put on the table. Uh, Mulder hasn't been looking around yet. But they're getting to the point where they're trying to see what's out there in terms of data. So what is this U.S. Congress hearing about? So it, it actually all starts back in 2020, believe it or not. At the end of 2020, Donald Trump, um, when they passed the COVID spending bill, added a line essentially that says the U.S. military, the Pentagon, had released all of their data that they had on UAPs and aliens and things like that to Congress in six months' time. So by June 2021, that happened. And then they started to look through the footage and we started to see data from pilots who recorded things. And then now... A few months ago, someone who used to work in the government in the geospatial intelligence service, essentially using satellites to spy, said, hey, there's actually more data out there, more conclusive, that has been investigated and looked on that wasn't released as part of this, and it needs to be released. And that's what these kind of latest hearings are about. So when we're hearing evidence about non-human beings, remains being found, and, uh, you know, alien vehicles and things like that, do you think there's much to it? So it's hard. I mean, look, I I think something is going on and I think some of these footages and videos are real. However, it doesn't 
And I do think there are things being hidden and covered up, but sometimes it's for good reason. There are reasons military and defense have secrets. And we have seen in the past, right? So when the U.S. was developing, say, the stealth fighters or planes that um, were special and, you know, couldn't be detected on radar. Um, they were weird. People saw them. It didn't match up with data. No one knew what was going on. And then eventually it came out. So there very well may be secret programs, but it may be terrestrial. And I think that's actually at heart what's a little bit looked at, Isu, is if these are real things people are seeing, are they the U.S. or do they belong to another country, which is really, I think, what the U.S.'s concern may be about. So do you think we're going to find out much out of all of these U.S. Congress hearings? Like, do you think it's going to lead to much? I, I don't think it's going to lead to any conclusive bond shell evidence, unfortunately. However, what I think it is changing, which is good, is it's creating a little bit more openness to discuss these things. You know, people see things, especially pilots. People take photos of the sky. We should be open to what people see and measure, especially scientists. That's what it's all about. It's all about building trust between those groups. If, if we uh, label people as, as weird and push them underground, they're not going to talk about it. And we may miss valuable information. So I hope that at least it's the sign of a cultural change to be open and talking. And people accept the idea of aliens a little bit more. So it's okay to talk about it. So I, I hope that eventually follows through um, and we can move forward. And, and maybe one day someone will really have it or maybe it does exist. I would love to see it. Well, hey, I think there are some people that have definitely already accepted the idea of aliens, Dr. Brad Tucker, and I happen to be one of them. Thank you so much for joining us on Hack. I really appreciate it. No worries, thanks. We've got so many messages coming through on this story, but also still lots of messages uh, for Hannah, lots of support. Someone says, in tears, sending you love, Hannah. A dear friend of mine has MS. Uh, a great support group is very important. And someone else says, yeah, I've struggled as well. My uh, wife got diagnosed years ago. We had to delay having our daughter as going off the meds made her have another attack and end up in hospital. So people with lots of experiences there. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time. Hack on Triple Jack.